I want you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. We'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to chapter 12, verse 6. If you are new to our congregation, we're so delighted that you're with us. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. They're black looking. Um, if uh, you're not used to opening a Bible, we encourage you to open, uh, open the Pew Bibles to page number 575. The, uh, the big numbers on the page are the chapter numbers, the small, tiny numbers are the verse numbers. They just help us to make our way through the Bible. And this morning we will be looking for the second time to a passage that is a, like a conclusion to the first major part of the book of Isaiah. We've been going through this book as a congregation for the na last few weeks, and uh, we arrive at a place where the end is painted before the destruction even begins. The end of God's restoration is painted before God actually ends up executing the punishment he, he also uh, predicted against his people. Well, this morning, let us look at this picture, at this passage that speaks about the reign of the Messiah. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather this, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. And those who harass Judah shall be cut, cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. 
I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, help us to get a picture of the end reality that you have promised to bring for your people. Father, as we hear this word that you have painted, that you have given to your people during Isaiah's time, may we be encouraged by it. May we be challenged by it. May we be stretched by it. And may you work in us in our own hearts, the ability to respond to you in the way that this passage uh, describes and declares. Would you speak to our hearts in the name of Christ, we pray, and through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I mentioned, dear friends, that so far, uh, this passage uh, marks the the ending of an important section in the book. I want to review to you briefly, especially for any of you who are new with us this morning, uh, I want to review where we've been in the book of Isaiah. The people of God in Isaiah's time have chosen to turn their backs against their creator, against God. They chose to be the final judges of what is right and what is wrong. They despised the word of the Lord. They ignored his instruction. They believed neither his promises nor his threats. They have become arrogant. They have become self-sufficient. And thus they continued to rebel in their own ways. Friends, in some ways, some of you this morning might feel like this description might describe you. Or it might describe someone you know. Well, let's learn from the story of Israel. There are a a few details that were unique to Israel's time, to Isaiah's time. But the pattern of the way the Lord chose to work is for us as well. In Isaiah's time, God promised to bring against that generation of Israelites, to bring them to utter ruin. Why? To show them that whatever they trusted in, Whatever they ran to for support, for encouragement, for meaning, for safety, whatever that was, would eventually bring them to ruin. The idols that they have put their hearts on, the the alliances that they have relied on, it is they that would end up being the the reason, the cause, the immediate agent of their destruction. And that was the kingdom of Assyria. God sent Isaiah to this people to call them to return to the Lord, to forsake their self-centered lives. If only they would listen to the call of God. But they didn't. So God did send against them the kingdom of Assyria. Our passage, however, is written before that destruction comes. The passage that we have just dealt with, that, that we have just read, describes a time of future restoration that God will bring for his people after the destruction has done everything that God wanted to do. In God's mercy, this destruction that God uh, threatened them with was not the last word that God spoke. God also promised a restoration that was unthinkable. 
He promised that he will start all over, rebuilding his people again. The generations of the Israelites on Isaiah's time rebelled and they perished. The royal line of kings has been broken. But despite, despite all these severe punishments, God would rebuild his people again. And now chapter 11 in Isaiah tells us how is it that God will restore them. We saw last week that God promised to restore his people by sending them a king, a new king, an unusual king, a king who would establish a new kind of kingdom unlike any others that they have seen or experienced before. Before we get into, into the description of the kingdom that this king will set up, uh, Isaiah chapter 11 tells us a, descri a description of the character of the promised king. We saw last week, the first half of, this, of the sermon on this passage, we saw the, the description, the character of the king that God will send in verses 2 to 5. What qualifies this king to reign over God's people is that he will have God's spirit upon him. It's not the political alliances. It's not his shrewdness of, of skill, political skill or might. It's that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon this king. And because of that, he will have a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This king will relate to the Lord in a unique way. Here's how this king will relate to the Lord. His delight will be the fear of the Lord. This king will also relate to God's people in a unique way. He will not judge by appearances. He will judge by righteousness. This king will overcome his enemies in a unique way. It will not be by military power, but by the mere use of his word. That comes out of his mouth. And this king will be ready to act in righteousness and faithfulness. All this has been given to us in verses 2 to 5 in Isaiah 11. Today, as we look at the rest of the chapter and the next chapter, um, we will look at the reign of the Messiah. And our text moves our attention away from the king now to the kind of reign that he will have. What will his kingdom be like when he comes to establish his kingdom what will that be like and the rest of our passage tells us answers that question we will look at four characteristics of the reign of the messiah from this passage four characteristics of the reign of the messiah from this passage if you like taking notes here's the first point the first characteristic of the reign of the messiah is the harmony of a new creation. The harmony of a new creation. From verses 6 to 9, we have a strange list of animals. As we read the passage, I wonder if any of you were puzzled by this list of interesting animals put together in this strange passage. What do, what do a lion, a wolf, and a leopard have to do with the Messiah that was just announced earlier. I mean, it feels like we're going to the zoo right now in this passage. Well, let's look at, at, at this list of animals uh, because there's something interesting about them. On one side, we have a wolf, a leopard, and a lion. Each of these animals are described as hanging out with another set of animals, a lamb, a young goat, and a calf. In our natural world, the first set of animals would never be placed in the same cage with the second set of animals. You try to keep them separate. Why? So they would not eat each other. So the lamb would not, be, would not be food for the wolf. So the goat would not be f breakfast for the lion. In our natural world, these sets of animals do not mingle, do not hang out with one another. The wolf naturally would eat the lamb. The leopard naturally would devour the young goat. The lion would naturally feast on the fattened calf. 
But here, in this picture, these animals are hanging out together. The threat, the violence that we would expect between, the, between these animals is taken away. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. In other words, the natural animosity, the natural hostility that exists within nature itself will be gone. Not only that, but a little child shall lead them. Now I wonder, my dear friends, especially you young parents who have young children, which of you would, uh, would suggest that your young one would lead the lion, the, the wolf, and the leopard in the story. But here a little child is presented as, as described as, as leading these animals. No force, no human force, no safety measures needed to be taken while leading these wild animals. This is a strange setup. The kind of setup that only exists in stories and fairy tales. Only that in the Bible, this setup is not entirely a fairy tale. This kind of setup actually was presented in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. In the Garden of Eden, when God created all the animals of the world and they dwelled together and mankind was given dominion over creation. In other words, if we take a step back and look at this picture of animals, God is describing the reign of the Messiah in language and pictures that remind us of the harmony that existed in our world before the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In verse 7, we see another pair of animals. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. In this verse, not only are they not devouring one another, but they are all eating grass. The bear, even the lion, is eating straws like an ox. In other words, the nature of these carnivore animals is changed. Again, the last time we saw this, was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, when God gave the menu for all his creation. He said that he had given every green plan for food for every beast of the earth. Every beast of the earth. Did you hear that? Every bird of the heavens and every, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plan for food. And it was so. And now in Isaiah 11, the reign of the Messiah is described in language that reminds us that the animals will feed on grass. Even the carnivore animals, their nature will be changed. Can you imagine a new creation which no longer has the stains of corruption and violence even in the natural animal world? In verse 8, we see another level of animosity abolished. It's the animosity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. Look at verse 8. The nursing child. And it's interesting because we have a few nursing children in our congregation. I just want you to picture this. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Remember the Garden of Eden? Remember the animosity that existed? that God had placed because of the curse, because of their rebellion, the curse between man, the offspring of the woman, and the serpent. But now, in this picture, it looks like the, the animosity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent is taken away. By describing the reign of Christ in this language of the Garden of Eden, God is hinting that he will bring about a renewed creation which will have the harmony that existed before the fall, before the rebellion. Oh, my friends, how many of us today, even among us, are craving, are yearning for that harmony to be fully manifested? Friends, I doubt there's one person in this room that can look around either in your own life or in your family's life 
or in your friend's life or in your co-worker's life, in your sphere of influence, and you are lacking seeing some tension of some sort somewhere. There's not one person who can look around, and if you are one, would you come and talk to me at the end of service? I want to have lunch with you. There's not one among us that can look around and say, I, I don't see tension. There's no tension around me, not in my life, not in my family's life, not in my friends' lives. There's not one. The, if you look closely enough, you'll see it. Why? Because every inch of this creation has been marred by the corruption that brings tension, conflict, violence, disruption. If you happen to experience a hurt that other people are causing you, either intentionally or unintentionally, it's a painful reminder that we are still on this side of that final consummation of the reign of the Messiah. We're not there yet. This picture that Isaiah presents, it's still in the future for us. But we should pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Your kingdom, come. Your will, be done on earth as it is in heaven. The conclusion of all this in verse 9 is that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In other words, the reign of the Messiah brings, will extinguish all animosity, all hurting, all destroying of one another. Friends, the reign of this king will not merely put an end to hurting and destroying. No. His reign changes the natural instincts. It's interesting that here it's not simply that the lion stopped eating the, the lamb. It's that the lion started eating grass. <laughs> There's no more instinct in him to eat the lamb. God changes the nature. This is why as Christians, one of the things that happens to us when we become Christians, probably the most important thing, that what that happens to us when we become Christians is that God changes our nature. To be a Christian is to be born again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God enables that, makes that possible through the Holy Spirit whom he pours out upon us when we hear the news of the gospel, the news that we all have rebelled against God, that we all deserve his righteous judgment but God in his mercy has provided a way to bring us out of that judgment to pay the judgment himself and he did it by sending his son Jesus to live the perfect life and yet he was crucified on a cross taking upon himself the punishment that our sins deserved so that through his death our punishment can be paid for and we can be reconciled with God and through his resurrection from the dead God proved that the penalty of sin has been fully made, that Jesus conquered sin and death, and through repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus, now God grants forgiveness and new life to anyone who would turn to Him. Oh, dear friend, if you're here and hear this word, this gospel proclamation, I call on you, I encourage you to return to the Lord. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ for your salvation. And if you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But when that happens in us, when we respond to the Lord, when we repent and trust in Christ for our salvation, we become a new creation. God gives us new instincts. This is why as Christians and as members of this congregation, the first vow of our church covenant is that we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because we have a new creation inside of us, a new nature. And the second vow expands what the first means. The second vow of our church covenant says, we will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up. Now, why do we have these two vows? as the first two of our membership covenant. Because as a church, the members of this congregation 
are called to put on display what the reign of Christ will look like. Now, do we do this all the time consistently? I wish. I pray. This is what I pray for often. But sometimes we fail, don't we? Sometimes, more often than not, we would rather keep it to our own self-centered, selfish ways. And sometimes those ways are hurtful. Sometimes, intentionally or unintentionally, we hurt one another. We, we, I hope we don't intend to do so, but it often happens. But we keep encouraging one another. We keep calling one another out. We keep challenging one another to strive to grow in harmony, knowing the motivation why we pursue this harmony. It's because the reign of the Messiah is characterized by this unique harmony, a harmony of a new creation. And the church is made of people who have been made a new creation. So the church is, is, is a display to be that harmony. Oh, friends, I pray that we would be agents willing to fight for that harmony, striving for it. And when we fail to do so, we encourage one another. We pick it up again and we strive back. Why? Because when we do so, we display the harmony. We display the unity that the king the reign of, of King Jesus uh, is bringing. In verse 9, we are given a reason why is it that they will not hurt or destroy one another. In verse 9, we get the secret of how is it that all hostility will be eradicated. Look at verse 9. B. 4. Here's why they will not hurt each other on my holy mountain. For, that, that tells us there's a, this is a reason why. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, the only time when this perfect harmony will be fully manifested here on earth is not when we will have enough military strength to subdue all our enemies. It's not when we figure out a way how to control North Korea. It's not, not when we figure out a way how to, how to wipe out ISIS and terrorism. The only way, the only time when we will no longer hurt one another will be when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. This means that we cannot experience this harmony apart from the knowledge of the Lord. This harmony is tightly connected with knowing the Lord and being filled with the knowledge of the Lord. This means that the whole earth must be filled with the knowledge of the, of the Lord. If you desire this harmony, if you desire this kind of restoration of relationships, come to know the Lord. Come to know the Lord. You might say, well, I have, and there's still tension. Well, then seek to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Seek to, know, to grow in the wisdom of the Lord. James 3, 6, 17, and 18 say, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Friends, is there tension in your life, in your relationships? Take this as a challenge and as an encouragement as well. The knowledge of the Lord affects our harmony. The harmony of the creation, of the whole creation, will happen only when the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The second characteristic of the reign of the Messiah, we saw the first one. The first one was quite long. The harmony of the new creation. Here's a second characteristic of the reign of the Messiah. This one will be a little shorter. His reign will draw the nations. His reign will draw the nations. The reign of the Messiah will not be not only for his people, Israel in particular, but it will be for all the nations. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In other words, my dear friends, the king whom God sends 
will draw international attention. The nations will come to this king. The nations will seek this king. His reign will not be a nationalistic reign. Can I get an amen for that? Friends, we are so affected by nationalistic frameworks that it's hard for us to imagine and to realize the kingdom of the Messiah will have no nationalistic boundaries. We need to give that up. And that means that even as a people of God, we, even as Americans, we care more for the nations coming to Jesus than for this nation to be great again. Can I get an amen to that? This king, the king of the Messiah, the reign of the Messiah, will get the attentions of the nations. The nations will seek this kingdom. That's why, my dear friends, when we send out resources to other nations for the proclamation of the gospel, we are contributing to this particular promise. When Nathan and Macy were out in Romania this summer, preaching the gospel in the southern parts of Romania, when, when uh, Ruth Fulmer was out in Jordan this summer preaching the gospel in Jordan, they were contributing to what these verses promise. When we as a congregation supported them with prayer, with finances, and when we support other missionaries around the world in other countries, we are contributing to the fulfillment of this verse that the nations will seek his kingship. That's why we want to be a church committed to international missions, to missions everywhere in our own city, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our, in our state, in our nation, but also in all the nations of the earth. I love how Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What will characterize the reign of this Messiah is that he will draw the nations to himself. The third characteristic, the third characteristic of this reign, his reign will build his people. His reign will build his people. The Lord describes in more detail how he will rebuild his people. Look at verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. Now, the remnant in the Old Testament language has at least two levels of meaning. There was an immediate meaning that happened for Isaiah's time, meaning the actual survivors who survived the, the invasion of Assyria. And then the survivors who survived the invasion of Babylon 150 years later. The, the physical remnant. But this picture of, of the physical remnant, those who survived the, the destruction, becomes and is developed to become a spiritual remnant. A second level of meaning, a, a spiritual meaning where the remnant is, is a people whom God is rebuilding. And, and when we come to, towards the end of even of Isaiah... And, as, and then of the New Old Testament, and then the, the wholeness of the New Testament, we see that part of the remnant is that the nations become part of the remnant. So when, when this picture of the remnant starts to develop, it starts off initially as a physical remnant of the survivors, but then it becomes this biblical notion, this spiritual notion into which the Gentiles are included. So now God is rebuilding a new, a renewed people of God that includes not only Jews, but also all the nations. And it's no longer just the Jews who are physically descendants of Israel, but it is all those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham who believe in Christ by faith. Now, how is it that, that this remnant is being rebuilt? The picture that we see here in verses 11 uh, through the end describes a few stages. Notice in verse 11, we see that the Lord is recovering a, a remnant, and the remnant is coming not just from Assyria, but from all parts of the world. Do you see those weird names in verse 11? How did they get there? Well, it's a people 
whom God is rebuilding from all the parts of the earth. In verse 13, God will unify his people again. Now, prior to the Assyrian invasion, the northern tribes called Ephraim were in constant tension with the southern kingdom of Judah. In verse 13, God says that he will take away the hatred that has divided his people. Their unity will no longer be superficial. No, God will take away the jealousy. God will take away the harassment between them. Oh, my friends, this goes back to the the theme of harmony that we saw in, in the very first point. Is there an area in our lives where we are experiencing the opposite of what the reign of Jesus will accomplish? Are there relationships in your life right now in which there's bitterness, lack of forgiveness, or harassment? Friend, if you are causing any of these, and if you are a child of God, the Lord desires for His people to be freed from such responses. Give up responding to others in destructive ways, whether that's bitterness, whether whether that's slander, whether that's critical response, whatever it is that is destructive, the Lord wants to take it away. And that means you need to let it go. It's easy sometimes for us to say, well, Lord, if you could just take away uh, the, the, the tension between me and my brother or the tension between me and my sister or the tension between me and that group of people, the Lord wants to take it away. But that means you got to let it go. Often, more often than not, we are the ones who want to hold on to it. We, wanna, we are the ones who are holding on, unwilling to, to grant forgiveness. We are the ones who are wanting to, to hold it tight to us. Why? Because we feel that by holding it tight, that's justice. Friends, the Lord will take away, He's willing to take it away, if you would be willing to let it go. In verse 14 and 15, God's people are portrayed as conquering over their enemies. Now you may wonder, wait, didn't we just say earlier in a few verses earlier that there'll be no more tension? Why do we get this picture of conquering now? Well, don't think here of a military conquest. Not at all. Remember that in verse 4, in chapter 11, the king was described as striking the earth. How was he striking the earth? By the rod of his mouth. Even if we see the imagery of God's people conquering their enemies, the conquering is not in the type of the crusades that sadly, very sadly, we have gotten into centuries ago. It's not that kind of conquering. The conquering that God envisions here is a conquering that happens through the victory that God gives his people through his word. When we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus sends out his disciples into all the nations. And what is the weapon he gives them? His word. His word. The gospel. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the ends of the age. I love how one commentator said, the force to which the nations fall is the gospel. In In this conquest, the force to which the nations fall is the gospel. Friend, the only sword that the people of God have to conquer the enemy is the word of God. The armor of the people of God is a spiritual armor. And we see that in Ephesians 6. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But here, in Isaiah 12, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 11, the people of God are described as victorious over their enemies. In verse 14, we see the people of God engage in this victorious battle. In verse 15, we see who exactly is bringing about the victory. It's not the people, it's the Lord. The reign of the Messiah makes God's people to be victorious over their enemies. Friends, 
What are the enemies that you are battling right now, spiritually speaking? What's going on in your own life? What are the struggles you are battling against? Trust in this great promise that God will bring full deliverance to his people against their enemies. Verse 16, the rescue of God's people from their bondage is described in imagery that reminds us of the first exodus. In other words, just as God saved his people from Egypt in the first exodus, there will be another rescue from slavery, another rescue from bondage. God's people will once again be brought back to freedom. And this time, it will be unending because the reign of this new king will have no end. Friends, God is committed to rebuild his people, bring them from all the nations of the earth. He will build up their unity. He will make them victorious. He will deliver them, over, uh, deliver them miraculously just as he did at the Exodus. And finally, there's a fourth characteristic of the reign of the Messiah. And the fourth characteristic is the response of the redeemed to his reign. The response of the redeemed to his reign. This passage is beautiful in the way it informs us, calls us, challenges us how to respond to this great news. There's four responses that are mentioned in this passage. God's people, when they will experience God's comfort and salvation, here's how, God, how God's people will respond. With thanksgiving, with trust, with proclamation, and with praise. Let's look at each of these briefly. In, verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 1, 2, one, two and 3, you will say in that day, what day? In the day when God will bring all this about. In that day you will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For you were angry with me, but your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Do you see how the response of the people of God is first and foremost a response of thanksgiving? The thanksgiving is based not on the fact that God diverted the punishment. No, he did carry out the punishment. God did carry out the punishment. But his punishment was not the last word. After carrying out the punishment, God brought comfort and healing to his people. And the comfort that God brought to his people was nothing short than their salvation. Thanksgiving. That's why, dear friends, one of the characteristics of God's people, when they recognize what God has done for them to save them, is that there's constant thanksgiving. Or there should be constant thanksgiving. It's not just a national holiday. It should be the regular day-to-day attitude of the people of God. Could things be rough? Could things be hard? Yes, we're still on this side of that full culmination. But thanks be to God, we know that our king is enacting salvation and his kingdom is coming. Perhaps it's not coming as fast as we would like it to come, but it is coming. Thanksgiving Notice in verse 2, God's people respond with trust. Behold, they say, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. To have God's comfort is to have God's salvation. When we have the salvation, my dear friends, we can trust him. This is what the people of, of Israel in Isaiah's time lacked. They would rather trust Assyria. Ahaz would rather trust his political manipulations, his political schemes. But the redeemed, when they realize that God is their salvation, not Assyria, the redeemed respond with trust in the Lord, relying upon him so that God is their strength. In verse 3 and 4, we see that God's people not only give thanks, not only do they trust him, but they engage in proclaiming his name. Look at verse 3. With you, you will, will draw water from the well. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, 
make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. There's some people who don't like the fact that we encourage one another to speak about Jesus. There's some folk who might think, well, you, this, this whole church thing, it's all about proselytizing. Well, friends, God commands us to speak about his mighty deeds. God commands us to speak about his mighty name. And if we are excited about his, if we are, if we are overcome by the, the greatness of his deeds, we can't stop. We cannot stop talking about it. If we struggle to talk about it, it's possible that we may have forgotten how great and mighty his deeds are. Proclaim his name. Make known his deeds among the nations. Is there something the Lord has done in your life that you can talk about? The way the Lord has rescued you from sin, from rebellion. Talk about it. In verse 5 and 6, we see God's people respond with singing praises. The fourth response, singing praises. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Oh, my friends, what a better way to close this segment, this this section of the book of Isaiah, than by calling God's people to respond with singing praises to God. And it's not just any singing, my dear friends. It's not the kind of singing, How great thou art. Oh, no, it's not that. It's a, How great thou art. It's a shouting. It's a joy. You know, friends, there's nothing... Well, there's a few things more discouraging, but this is one of them. Singing, seeing Christians refuse to sing praises to the Lord or sing with a half heart. Or worse, I'm going to say this, and some of you may not like it. Preferring to listen to others sing for you and for you to be ministered to. Now, I get it. There's, God has blessed some people with some voices that are so powerful, so, so wonderful. They're just listening to, to their songs, ministers to our souls. I get that. Friends, if you want that, get a CD. Go to a concert. You can do it on your own. But when we are gathered here together, we're going to challenge one another to grow in singing together. You'll say, well, well, Samuel, I don't know how to sing. I sing horrible. You don't want me to hear, you don't want to hear me singing. And I might respond to you, you may be right. I may not want to hear you sing, but the Lord wants to. And what he wants to is more important than me liking while you sing. So give up the idea that we're singing so that people can like us. We are here. We got only four or five songs we can sing together when we're gathered. We want to equip you with being singing Christians. And you say, I've never done it. Great. Join the church so we'll help you do that together. Because joyful Christians are singing Christians. And we want to sing joyfully, and we want to sing loud. It's not about the AP and the microphones creating the sound. We want to make sure that your voices sing louder than the microphones. We want to make sure that your voices are louder than the instruments. That's why often we ask the instruments to keep it low. Mirror. Create the space where we can start singing, we can encourage singing. But then go a cappella. I love how Sam oftentimes leads us in times of a cappella in our singing. Why? Because we want to hear ourselves together sing to the Lord. We want to be singing Christians. A joyful Christian will show that so that when the time comes in singing, we will sing. And sometimes I, you know, I come up at the end of the service and occasionally, very, very, very seldomly, but once in a while, I do see some who are just staring at the words. Now, it could be because you don't know the song. We encourage you to learn it. Um, it could be because your voice is out, um, and that's possible. There's nothing you can do. Just wait until next week. Come back. But some of you may, may not sing because either you're not engaged. You're just not engaged. Or second, because the joy is lacking. We want to be a church that, among other things, is known for the joyful corporate singing 
of the saints gathered together. Well, dear friends, the reason why I bring that out is not so that we can entertain ourselves. No, we could probably do better entertaining by having a professional band. But we're going to do this together because God describes that the reign of the Messiah is characterized by people who respond to the king with joyful and loud singing of praises. That's why. Because it matters. We paint a picture of the reign of the Messiah by the way we respond in song. Oh, friends, we come to the end of this section in the book of Isaiah, and I want to remind you of the truths we have covered last week and this week. The truths that we have covered in these two chapters, that God declares that He is restoring His people. He will restore His people. And remember, this passage is given before the destruction even took place. He wants them to get this picture in their minds so they can have something to grab a hold of when Assyria is coming. So they could have a picture to grab a hold of when Babylon is coming. The picture is this. No matter what the destruction they will experience, God promised to restore his people. And he will do it by sending them a king. And then we saw the character of this new king. And then we saw the characteristics of the reign of this king. The harmony of a new creation. The fact that his reign will draw in the nations. The reign, his reign will rebuild his people. And the response of God's people to his reign will be that of thanksgiving, trust, proclamation, and joyful praise. May that be our response to the king. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you are gracious to give your people such an ultimate culminating picture of what you will one day do. And Lord, even though this picture came to the people of Isaiah before the destruction even came, Lord, some of us this morning may feel like this picture is given to us, and yet, in the immediate future, there's so much more hurt that we are experiencing. And it feels like the pain is not going to go away anytime soon. Lord, thank you for this picture of what you will one day do. Help us to respond to you with faith, with trust, with reliance upon you. So whether whether you call us home or you come return back, whichever way it is, and whether that will be soon or later, Lord, we pray that your people, your people gathered in this congregation, will respond to your name and to your reign in the way that you have described for us. We pray that Christ would be exalted. We pray that his reign will be physically and, ma and visibly manifested. We pray for your glory to come, for your kingdom to, to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.